morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 2, looking at verses 15 through 25. That was read for us just a few minutes ago, so I won't read it now, but I'll open us in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord, may the words spoken, may the meditations in our heart be pleasing in your sight. May we understand the good gifts you've given us, and may we use them rightly for our good and your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. While I was growing up, my family really enjoyed vacations, and to help times pass in the car, my parents would all of us often give us activity books. In these books would be various things, word searches, coloring pages, and connect the dot images. I don't know if you've ever done these. They'll have numbers starting with one, and then we'll say maybe up to like 57. You draw a line from number one to two, two to three, three to four, and so on until you get to 57. And I'm sure now as an adult looking back, the picture was probably obvious as soon as you looked at it. But as a kid, I was always waiting to see what it was going to be when I got to number 57. But sometimes I would get there and I'd go, this doesn't make any sense. And then I would go back and I'd find, oh, I'd skipped a number here and I'd skipped a number there. And that sent me right, and the picture was all messed up. So what did I have to do? I had to go all the way back, erase all those numbers, get to where I was correct, and go along. In the same way, sometimes we're like that in life. We're going along and we get to a point and we go, something is wrong here. C.S. Lewis writing about this says, we all want progress. But if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. There's nothing progressive about being pigheaded and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it's pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We're on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. And we could examine many areas where we have gone down the wrong path. But as we noted earlier, we're going to spend three weeks talking about marriage. We ended in 1 Kings just a few weeks ago in 1 Kings 11, where Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And then in our church in two Sundays, Latavia and Daryl are going to get married. So based on our text and our context, we wanted to lay a foundation for marriage. Now today is going to be more of a clearing the ground, so to speak, to understand these ideas. And actually, if you have the outline, we're going to spend most of the time on finding the path, if that's on the back of the bulletin. That's going to be most of our time. And then we'll spend some time on the current situation is not good and returning to the path, and we won't have time to get to the last point. But want to lay for us a groundwork, and this will take some time because we need to back up and even ask, is there a path or even a road to find? Let's consider Solomon. I mean, almost everyone condemns his actions, but based on what standard? If every single one of those women had consented, would that make it okay? These are not abstract questions. Just last year in 2020, a city in Massachusetts legalized polyamorous relationships as being the same as marriage between two. You may have heard this year in March, a second town in Massachusetts 
passed a similar law allowing polygamy as the same as marriage between two. A couple years ago, three men in California adopted children together, and all three are legally listed on their paperwork as their parents. But was that right? Was that wrong? From 1860 to 1896, the Utah Territory asked many times to be allowed as a state. And yet until they would outlaw polygamy, they were not allowed. Was that oppressive state coming in and demanding how people live? And as I was looking at First Kings, I'd read a lot of responses to this. And I was like, you know, this is really not that important. This is not a big deal. So there's some random things. And yet when I check news, I check a few sources. One of them is BBC. And that day, the day I said, you know, this is not that big an issue, the leading article was it titled Ethical Non-Monogamy, The Rise of Multi-Partner Relationships. So let me make that real simple. Here's an article trying to convince you that polygamy is okay. This is not some random news source. This is a major worldwide organization writing an article to convince its readers we should be fine with polygamy. Well, how can we know? Can we say anything's right or wrong, or is it up to each person? And the reality is, no matter what everyone claims, everyone believes there's right or wrong. We may say, well, morals are relative, but as soon as you grab for their wallet, it's not so relative anymore. They're going to say, that's wrong. You can't take from me. And I want us to consider four common ways that people always get their views of what's right and wrong. You know, as a society, as we've abandoned the Bible as our moral compass, we've had to grab something else. We've had to have some other path to be able to say, well, this is right. This is wrong. And yet, often as you walk down these paths, you end up having to say some rather appalling things. And we need to consider this because the Christian faith leads to life and flourishing. We need to be clear, our views are not held just because the Bible says so, though we do hold it because of that. What the Bible says will be good for our society. And as we go away from that, it will be harmful for our society. And sometimes in that, we need to realize that the best defense is a good offense. Now, I'm not talking about being offensive, but sometimes when these issues arise, you need to ask your friends questions. Well, how do you determine that anything is right or wrong? How can we know? Well, let's look at four common ways. And again, we're going to spend a little bit of time on this, and then at the end, begin to look at Scripture and then really dive into Scripture over the next two weeks. But the first one is, well, we can know right and wrong by society. And you often see this. They'll say, well, 63% of the nation supports this, or 82% of the nation supports that. And people often want to go, well, what does society say? That's what we're going to make our laws. This is what's moral. And so people who want this will make propositions and we'll put it on the ballot. What do the people say? And through propositions, some states have legalized euthanasia. Some states have legalized various forms of marriage, ver legalized various forms of drugs. But what if slavery were put on the ballot? If 51% of the people voted yes, would we then go, oh, well, the people have spoken. It must be moral. Well, no, we would say, no, no, that's immoral. We would be showing that actually there's a standard above what society thinks. So it doesn't matter if you're on the right side of history. History is just what 
society is saying. We realize there's a standard. And even in that, we as a society say, you know, it's right to fight for the oppressed, the marginalized. Well, that's implicitly saying the majority is not right all the time. And that's why it may be helpful to consider why so many people think an issue is right or wrong. The mass of society can never determine or be the judge for what is right or wrong. A second way people often determine right or wrong is nature. You probably have heard people appeal to this. Well, look at the creatures that are doing this. It's so natural, implying, well, that makes it right to do. Sometimes it's flipped around. You've probably heard this argument. It's unnatural for adult humans to drink milk. No other adult species drinks milk, and no species drinks milk from another animal. So implication, humans shouldn't drink milk. Now, I'm not arguing for that, but that's the argument. It's all about, well, what does nature say? Well, it's not natural, so we shouldn't do it. However, though we shouldn't always discount appeals to nature, what is its supreme law? Survival of the fittest. Let's take bees, for instance. How do bees get from one queen to the next? Death match. Now, that might make for some exciting presidential campaigns, but it's not very moral. You don't actually, we don't actually think that just because this happens in nature, we should now apply it to us. Nature is not a good guide for our ethics. And people are not very consistent with this. It's quite unnatural to wear clothes. It's quite unnatural to build bathrooms. But I'm glad that we do both. You know, we have to realize, though, that people appeal to this. The adults probably remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, when there was this push for homosexual marriage study, and I put that in quotes, after study was shown trying to find any species, anyone that was engaged in homosexual behavior, because then it was like, well, look, it's natural. So it must be okay. And yet, being natural does not equal okay. And as more and more cities will add polygamy laws, the arguments will come. Look, it's natural. How many species are monogamous? Well, not many. And yet again, this is very selective. Not trying to be crude or crass here, but if you've been around a farm, the bull does not exactly go around asking for permission. Does that make it okay? Well, no, because they're animals. Nature is not a sure guide for us to determine what is right or wrong. This leads to the third way, and the most dominant view in our society, so I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this. And this is you can, you can determine right and wrong for yourself. You all know the phrases, follow your heart. You do you. No one can judge me. And our culture has been quite successful at teaching our children that they should think this way. In 1996, Arthur, the popular TV children's show, began. And their theme song is, every day when you're walking down the street and everybody that you meet has an original point of view. And I say, hey, what a wonderful kind of day if you can learn to work and play and get along with each other. Open up your ears. Get together and make things better by working together. Okay, then it goes, it's a simple message, and it comes from the heart. Believe in yourself, because that's the place to start. Really, we should start our understanding of life by, I'm just going to believe whatever in here? Well, 
for 25 years, children are singing along. Yeah. And it's not just one show. Movie after movie preaches this to children. Let's go back a few decades. What was Little Mermaid all about? Well, Ariel needs to say, Dad, I don't care what you think. I'm going to go do this. And what's the final implication? Ariel was right. She should have disobeyed and gone against what her parents said. Or Aladdin. What should Jasmine and Aladdin do? Well, don't listen to the rules of the palace. Don't listen to any of that. Follow what you love. Follow what's true to you. And we could go through movie after movie where it's the same theme. Pocahontas, Brave, Moana. And the list could go on and on. Movie after movie, preaching. Follow what is ever in here. Don't let any standards or guidelines outside of here tell you what to do. This was made explicit in Frozen. What does Elsa sing? It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. When are you free? When you say, not listening to anyone but me. That's what we should do. That's what being ethical is. Now, my point, just so don't misunderstand me, my point is not that you shouldn't watch those movies. In fact, the best thing you might do is watch those movies with your children and then talk about it. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ so that they can go, wow, they keep preaching over and over the same message and it's wrong. But it's as well, it's also to point out, we shouldn't be surprised when for 25 years we've been preaching to children, follow your heart, and then they say as a whole generation, well, it's okay for them to follow their heart. And we go, whoa, whoa, why would you believe that? Well, we've been preaching it to you for 25 years. Of course, that's why you believe it. Now, some thinkers in trying to understand all this have called this mindset expressive individualism. Carl Truman writes about it. Expressive individualism particularly refers to the idea that in order to be fulfilled, in order to be an authentic person, in order to be genuinely me, I need to be able to express outwardly that which I feel I am inside. And you can hear in there the language of people talking about their relationships or even the reasons for wanting to change their gender. Well, that's who I am on inside. I got to be true to myself. I don't want to lie. Well, what should we think about all this? Well, I'm going to say four things, and then we'll look at the fourth way and then dive into Genesis 2. Well, first, we should recognize the danger of being something different internally than we are externally. In one level, that is true. Jesus rebuked the religious leaders, Matthew 15, 7 through 8. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And yet, what was Jesus saying? He was not saying, so what I want you to do is live as horribly in your heart as you are in the world. He was saying instead, change your heart and in fact, live like you are doing. And yet we're saying the opposite. Well, you have bad desires, so just go ahead and live them out. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. The Bible calls us to admit that not every desire of our heart is good. Some of them are wrong. That's why Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 declares, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In other words, don't listen to what your heart's saying. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. 
But this is such a common thinking. We really need to be able to interact with our friends when you are challenged. Well, why wouldn't you be affirming of this relationship or of this person's choice? And we can say to them, if you follow this logic of follow your heart to its consistent end, it will be the killing of love. Follow your heart is irreconcilable with loving others. What is love about? Love says, I'm going to deny myself so I can serve you. A loving parent gives up their desires to care for their child. A loving spouse gives up any urge or desire to pursue other lovers, and they care for their spouse even when they don't feel like doing so. To be loving, you have to be truthful to the people that you love. But many would say the opposite. Well, if you've come to realize the truth inside, well, then it doesn't matter what vows you've made or how many children you've had. There, doesn't matter. It's all about you. Yet a loving parent doesn't say it's all about me. A loving parent says I'm giving up my life for you. You can't follow your heart and be true to loving others. And any ideal of meaningful community dies if we follow be true to yourselves. But third, we just have to ask our friends who say this. Does this really lead to a blessed life? I mean, honestly, if you follow your heart, does that really make your life better? I mean, if I follow, when I think about when I've followed my heart, I've destroyed a lot of relationships. When I've given full vent to what's going on in here, I have to circle the wagons and say, you know what, I'm sorry for saying everything that was in my heart. It didn't bless my relationships. It made them a lot worse. As well, wouldn't almost every adult admit sometimes I was able to follow my heart and I got exactly what I wanted and then I said, yeah, I didn't actually want this. A couple weeks ago, I opened up a wrapper for Dove Chocolate. They love to give you these inspirational warming messages in them. And it said, you do you. And I thought, oh, isn't that wonderful? Even my chocolate now is telling me to do what I want to do. And I thought, you know what? I bet if my doctor was here, he would be saying, don't do you. Rope, put that wrapper back up and put it back in the closet. It's not time to eat chocolate right now. It wasn't helpful for me. And yet our society keeps preaching this over and over. And yet this is not like some secret that us Christians have realized that following your heart won't actually bless your life. We all realize this. We'll just be honest about life. I picked on Disney a little earlier, so let me say something positive. Recently, they had a movie named Soul, and in it, a musician named Joe has lived his whole life to be in a jazz band, and he finally gets a break to play with the famous Doretha. And the night comes, and it flies by like a dream, and he loves it, and he is just in heaven, and it ends, and everyone leaves the jazz area, and he's out saying goodnight, and he goes, Doretha, what are we going to do next? And she says, we're going to come back tomorrow and do it again. And his face goes, and you can tell that his dream has just been shattered. And he says, I've lived for this my whole life. And is this all it is? I thought it'd be different. He thought life would finally be worth living if I could only be in the jazz band. And he got the jazz band and he goes, you got to do it again? Like, I thought it was going to be better. I thought it was, this was going to be the life. And it wasn't that he hated jazz music, but even in our movies, we can recognize, look, following your heart does not lead to unending bliss. 
like we think. Fourth, we need to respond to our friends that following your heart will lead to really dark places. Just read the book of Judges. In the book of Judges in the Old Testament, they get worse and worse and worse. And there's a common refrain that keeps happening every time they spiral into worse and more horrific sin. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Or we could say right to their own heart. Now we should realize when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, when everyone follows their heart, it'll kill love and it will lead us to really the weak being abused by those who can force others to their way. Now I want to say something else next. And I'm going to say it kind of broadly since we have some children in here. But thankfully, we are not always consistent with our logic. Except the reason polygamous marriage is being allowed now is because of the logic we got to get to homosexual marriage. And that is, well, love is love. So you can't say anything. As long as you're consenting as adults, that's okay. And yet, if love is love, then why not three or four or eight or 27? I mean, love is love. They're consenting. Who are we? And so be surprised if we don't have more polygamous marriage because the logic is being pushed to its logical end. Now let's think about two other things. And adults, you can make the connections in your mind. We have as a society also now been saying, you know what? If there's a minor who gets pregnant, her parents have no right to say she can't get an abortion. In fact, many are arguing, have been arguing for years, that is completely her decision. The parents shouldn't even be informed. So what are they saying? You can give consent to your body from age 12 and up. So put those ideas together. Consenting adult now means consenting 12-year-old and all of the ugly ramifications. That's where the logic leads. Now, I want to be clear. No one is arguing for that. But when we were at homosexual marriage, no one was arguing for polygamy. Logic follows itself to some really dark places. And we, to our friends, need to point out what you're saying is very dark. You may not realize it, but let's think about the implications of what is being said in our society and where this could go. Because that is really dark. So if we can't appeal to ourselves, if we can't appeal to society, if we can't appeal to nature, where are we going to get some consistent moral base? I say consistent because it's not bad. I'm not saying never listen to your heart. God gave us a conscience. It's a good thing. Just don't make it the ultimate determiner. I'm not saying don't listen to society. We should be raise a flag. Wait, why am I thinking different than everyone else? Now, you may realize, oh, they're wrong. But we should listen to others. I'm not saying don't listen to nature. It can show us at times. However, none of them is consistently going to lead us in a life that honors God. And so the fourth way, the way we need to follow, is one of a standard, a universal principle that is ultimately, Christians have argued, God himself. God is the only standard for us always knowing what is true, moral, and right. Thus the Ten Commandments begin, and God spoke all these words, saying. Either God did speak those things, and we should obey, or he didn't, and then they're just another human attempt, another society trying to push their views but as opposed to other systems that arbitrarily pick from nature well we like this ethic in nature eh, we're not going to talk about that one um here there is a consistent universal and absolute basis 
for morality. Oppressing the poor is wrong, always wrong, not because you think it is wrong or society agrees with you. Oppressing the poor is wrong because they are made in God's image and deserving of value and respect no matter what their socioeconomic status. Even something that is so obviously wrong, like racism, really has no rational basis in nature unless there is a universal standard against it. Now, we need to briefly pause. I'm not going to dive in this too much, but well, aren't we just being hypocritical? We just looked at 1 Kings 11 and Solomon had all these wives. I mean, are we now just cherry-picking? We are picking from the Bible which ones we want? Well, no. Rather, two things need to be realized. The Bible reporting something is not the same as endorsing it. Though polygamy was practiced every time the horrible ramifications from it are shown. As well, we read from Jesus earlier in Matthew 19, and what did he say? He said God's pattern from the beginning has been one male and one female joined for life. You know, the Bible's message is not about how great these humans were. It's that we needed God to come in and how great God is. God works even through flawed humans, but that does not then give us permission Every time a flawed human in the Bible does something, they go, well, we should follow that. What does God's principles say? Well, that being said, I know that was a long explanation, but I think as we get further in our culture, we're going to need to be able to explain, well, why do we hold to this? Why are we so opposed to following your heart? Well, because there's some really good reasons that that's a very dangerous approach. So why should we listen? Well, because this gives us a standard to call all evil, evil. Not just arbitrarily say some things are evil. But that being said, let's look at two things from Genesis 2, 15 through 25. Let's see that the current situation is not good and then return to the past. So the current situation is not good. You know, we already, I mentioned earlier, actually I meant to mention earlier, we say follow your heart, but close to 35 to 50% of marriages end in divorce. Those people follow their heart and not that long later they're saying, well, that didn't lead me correct. And so now many people are saying, well, let's try before we buy. The thought goes, well, let's live together, and then we'll know we're compatible. So now, ages 18 to 24, more people cohabitate than marry. So those have switched. And I want to briefly pause here. We have a very warm church. I don't think anyone's angry, but we need to be clear. This is not being angry. This is not us pounding pulpits trying to make society return to what we want. We should say all of this in love, in compassion. When people pursue these plans outside of God's design, it harms them. It makes their life worse. And we should understand for a generation of people, two generations, that have grown up in broken homes, the fact that they go, I'm not going to put my children through that. I'm going to try something else is understandable. And yet we have to point out it doesn't work. The rate of divorce if you cohabitate is 46% higher than if you don't. That doesn't work either. The problem is we keep saying, well, let me try something else. Let me try something else. Let me try something else. And I'm saying, listen to C.S. Lewis. Go, let's do an about face. Let's get back to the place on the color of the dots where we were going on the path. And then let's go, who shows us the path? God does. So what is the path? 
Well, part of the path is realizing that not everything being good is not just in our culture. It's also in the Bible. Look in Genesis chapter 1, flip back one page. Because God made the world and everything in it. But notice what he says after very many days. Look at Genesis 1, verse 10. At the very end, it says, And God saw that it was good. Look down at the end of verse 12. It says, And God saw that it was good. Look down at verse 18. It says, And God saw that it was good. Look down at verse 21. It says, And God saw that it was good. Look down at verse 25. And God saw that it was good. So we have God's vote on creation. It's good. And then he says something else. Look down at the end of verse 31. He summarizes the whole thing, all of creation, and God saw everything he made, everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So there's no doubt God looks at creation, perfect world, good, 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 very good. Yet now flip over to Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis 1 is a panorama, this universal-wide view of creation. Genesis 2, the camera lens, zooms in on one aspect of creation, that of creating male and female. And look at verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good. Wait. Sin doesn't come till chapter 3. How can there be something that's not good? Well, what's not good? Well, he tells us, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. This should astonish us as we read the Bible. Good, 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 very good, not good. Well, what's not good? Is it not good to be single? That's not what he's saying not bad to be single rather he's saying it's not good for there to be no helper to not have someone to have fellowship with which often happens in marriage but then through eve were many people but then god does an interesting thing he wants to make a helper suitable for adam but he doesn't do it right away he then sends adam on a task hey adam you know why don't you have all the creatures come and you name them all so God summoned them all in one by one or pair by pair. We're not given that detail. He brings them and Adam begins to call them. Aardvark, albatross, alligator, alpaca, on and on and on. Zebra, zebu. Woo. And Adam probably kicked his shoes off, went home. What a day. And he goes to tell. Well, that's the problem. Who's he going to go tell? Who's he going to share? Oh, my day was like this. Well, God had him see all the creatures to realize there's no one for me to share my life with. There's no one for me to have fellowship with. I need someone. He doesn't need something. He doesn't need an it. He needs someone so that he might have fellowship, that he might have a helper in life. Now, we need to be clear. Helper in no way is a denigrating term. Psalm 121, three times, the same word for helper, God is called our helper. So helper is an honorary role. That is what God does. So then let's return to the path, our last section, because verses two, verse chapter 2, verse 21, 
we see that God now, that Adam recognizes, I need someone. God causes Adam to fall asleep. And he takes a rib from him and forms the woman. Matthew, Henry, beautifully writes, The woman was made from the rib he taken out of the man, not out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and here his heart to be beloved. And so then after forming the woman, God brought her to the man. And Adam responds with astonishment, with joy, because here is one who finally compliments him. They are both equal before God, yet they are different. They are distinct. Now some find frustration in the differences and the distinctions of the sexes, and some deny them. Yet anyone with an open eye to reality can recognize the numerous ways men and women are different, though still equal before God. You know, God created these difference not differences not to frustrate our life, but to enhance it. That is why earlier, verse 18, God said he'd make a helper suitable for him, one that is perfectly the match. Dogs are wonderful, but they shouldn't be your best friend. They don't complete you. God made you for people, not for animals. And the whole point of marriage here is to complement, to serve the other one. Yet this is so radically different than our society. Let's see, marriage is good as long as it serves me. As long as I'm still in love with you, as long as you're still filling me up, as long as you're still helping me, then we'll stay married. But as soon as we're not, we are done. Your marriage is about giving yourself for the benefit of others. And yet the radical thing is the way God made the world is the more you give, the more you serve, the more you enjoy. God made us in his image, and God is a being of love and service. And you will enjoy life more the more you reflect him, the more you act in love and service, and in this case, for your spouse. So he goes on in verse 24, and God says, that Due to this, a man and a woman shall leave their parents and cling to each other. Now, many problems in marriage arise when people fail to do this. Your family of upbringing may be great, or it might be horrible. But whatever it was, at marriage, you should make a decisive break from them and unite with your spouse. Some of you may have in your kitchen a meat cleaver. Quite the helpful tool. Your hand is out of the way and you know how to use it. Because you can, boom, one hit, you can separate two big pieces of meat. And yet those meat pieces of meat are apart. They are not coming back together Even if you get some kind of kitchen twine, you're barely holding them together. They are taken apart. And that's what God says should happen at marriage. You are cleaved. You are put apart from your parents. And now the primary source of your counsel, the primary source of your love, your encouragement is no longer your parents, but your spouse. And also from this, he's showing us this should be a lifelong commitment. Cling, cling to each other for life. Well, it does I know it doesn't say that for life in verse 24, but that's what Jesus in Matthew 19 clearly saw was the implication that God joins together and what he joins together should not be taken apart. And when they cling together, that's because they're becoming one flesh. Marriage creates a new unit. And this is one of the problems so many marriages fail is they don't recognize that we should be a unit. 
Two people get married because of common lust, and then they continue in their different career goals, their different lives, their different things, and then one day they go, hey, we don't actually like each other. Well, no, because you've got to merge. You've got to become one. Work things together. Don't have two separate lives. Interweave them that you are now one unit together. So from these verses, Christians have seen that the first purpose of marriage is fellowship, that we might have friendship, that these two provide one another faithful friendship and companionship, that we're committed to helping and caring for the other and, well, as the wedding vows say it, richer and poorer, sickness and health, better or worse till death do us part. Next week, we'll look at this passage more and see that God also intends for marriages to be for procreation. He intends for marriages to be for pleasure. And yet we'll save that for next week. But here, we're seeing that marriage is to bring fellowship. All of this is really a picture of God's own relationship within himself and the Trinity. Sinclair Ferguson writes, here in the marriage relationship, there can exist a pale but real reflection of the social fellowship within God's own being as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The ultimate aim of God of marriage is to reflect God's image, to reflect the glory of his grace and being. This means that marriage can never be an end in itself. It exists for a greater purpose than its own fulfillment. When two people are joined in the Lord, something of the glory of God should be seen. The Father's love for his son, the son's love for his father, the spirit's love for both. These should be at least sensed and tasted in the Christian marriage. God demonstrated his glory most clearly in the sacrifice of his son. So a marriage demonstrates the glory of God most clearly when at the heart there is a spirit of self-sacrificing love. And yet though these ideas are really quite clear from Scripture, as Christians in the U.S., we have denied them in our actions. I remember being a math teacher, sitting in the teacher's lounge talking, and one woman, we were talking about marriage, says, you know, life is just too short to be unhappy. If you're in a bad marriage, you should just get divorced. Now, this was a woman who I knew was very active in her church, and most of the fellow math teachers were also active in their churches, and they all shake their head, yeah. There was a prominent pastor several years ago whose wife divorced him, and he had preached for years before this, the teaching of his denomination, that a pastor should not stay a pastor if they're divorced. And yet, when he was divorced, he said, this will help me be able to minister to my congregation better. I'll understand where they're coming from. I bring all this up because as Christians, we need to be honest with the world. We have been hypocritical in how we apply this. We have many Christians who say, will follow your heart in marriages of two different sexes. But no, no, not same sex. That one's wrong. We followed the path of the world's way of thinking until it reached a spot we didn't like. And then we say, well, we're not going to agree with that. And we as a church, not saying everyone in this church or our church, but we as Christians in the U.S. have been quite hypocritical. We have not lived up to what God has called us to. But like with Jesus and the Pharisees, we then don't go, okay, Well, we've been hypocritical in the past, so let's just continue in our hypocrisy. We go, no, let's do an about face, repent, go back to what God calls us to, and live faithfully from there. Let me end by giving an illustration about this, because a few years ago, about a decade ago, 
Another prominent Christian had a radio show and a person called in and said, hey, I'm concerned. I have a friend. And they've started dating other women because their wife has Alzheimer's. And what do you think about this? They, they say, well, you know, it's not the person I married. They basically have died anyways. And the Christian radio host says, well, you're basically right. What that person should do is get a divorce, make sure they're taken care of, but that's really a drag on their life. I mean, this is Christian, national, and so people go, well, look, that's what Christians are saying. Yet in contrast to that, there's another man, you may have heard of him, Dr. Robert McQuilkin. He used to be the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary. He was really well known, and he was in his early 50s when he started recognizing not everything is right with my wife. And as he was continuing to love her and care for her, they diagnosed her with Alzheimer's. And she was getting worse and worse, and he would find that what she wanted, the only place she could find comfort in life was by being with him. So they lived about a mile from the university, the seminary, and she would walk there multiple times throughout the day just to be with him. And one day as he was taking her shoes off, he saw they were bloody, and he realized, this can't continue. And so what did he do? He didn't listen to his friends. He didn't listen to everyone saying, well, just hire better staff. He resigned from being president and said, I said, I'll be faithful till death do his part. And so that is what God wants us to see. Not about, am I getting fulfilled right now? But am I reflecting the Savior? Am I reflecting God's love to the world? And when we grasp that, then we can show marriages that will bless others and honor God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, may we have your heart. Lord, we are people who love ourselves, who want to pursue our own fulfillment. And yet you have made such a beautiful world that in service, we are fulfilled. In de denying ourselves, in dying to self and living for you, that is where life is found. So, Lord, may you work in us such a love for you that we would reflect you in all things, even in our marriages. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.